All right, well, you may notice this morning, if you're very keenly observant, that I am not Peter. I am James. Peter is not here. He is in Delaware, uh, preparing to engage in a multi-day trial. Uh, and he and I have something a little bit in common because uh, last week I engaged in a multi-day, or multi-day trial, in a sense, an arbitration, four days. And I'll tell you, as I was telling somebody else, and as Peter will be able to attest, it's, it's kind of amazing how exhausted you can get just sitting in a chair <laughs> for a certain amount of time when you're having to concentrate uh, that hard and, and trying to be thinking things out as you're, as you're going through. Trials can be exhausting. And when we come to Matthew chapter 26, and indeed uh, when we read in Matthew chapter 27 as well, we see Jesus on trial. We see Jesus on trial first before Caiaphas, before the religious authorities of his day, the scribes, the other chief leaders of his people, and then in Matthew chapter, chapter 27, we see him on trial before the secular authorities, Pontius Pilate, with the weight of the Roman Empire behind him. And these two trials, both of them would be, I'm sure, and I would say more than likely were to many people, a terrifying experience because both of them in their own way had great power and great sway. My father has mentioned, I've never been involved in a case like this, but my father is is at times a criminal defense lawyer, represented people who were had the weight of the United States arrayed against them. The United States v. you as defendant. Kind of a terrifying prospect. All of the resources of the United States on one side and you and your lawyer on the other. Well, what Jesus had arrayed against him from an earthly sense certainly was not simply the Roman Empire, the most powerful, most dominant empire uh, perhaps to ever exist, on the one side, that as represented by Pontius Pilate. But also, uh, and what we're going to talk about today, is that he was faced with all of the most respected, most revered, most honored people of his people. I think it's important for us to think about that as we uh, uh, come to this passage. Jesus, of course, we know, came to this world to die for all people. That is true. And yet, Jesus also came to this world as a Jew. And he came to this world, and he worshipped, and he was engaged in the Old Testament legal practices, for the most part, that would have defined any Jew living in his era. And therefore, as a human being, very man as well as very God, he was, in a sense... We know not in an eternal sense, but in a sense, under the authority of these men. And certainly, he was uh, in a culture, in a time, in which these men would have been very awe-inspiring. And we see this as potentially a very terrifying, very difficult concept uh, to, uh, to engage with. But what we also see is... I would say a fairly unusual, uh, from what we see in Scripture, posture taken by Jesus. We see a Jesus who is 
seems to be acting a little bit differently than we see him at various times. And acting in a way that you would not expect if you were on trial. Now, again, let's think about the context here. Let's go a little bit further back. This time where Jesus was under arrest and was being placed on trial in the middle of the night, there were days that came before this. This was during a week in which I think it's safe to say Jesus had experienced every human emotion you could probably possibly have experienced yourself. He packed a lot into this week. We see in Scripture the, the excitement and the happiness of Palm Sunday. And even with Jesus knowing what was to come, I think it is uh, fair to assume that this would have been something that would have brought delight to his heart. We see Jesus uh, engaged in close fellowship and intimacy with his disciples. By the way, it's interesting to even think about this. He was not just sharing food, he was washing their feet. This was a tactile fellowship that he was engaged in. There was one of his disciples was leaning his head on him. He was very close with them. And this Last Supper was a time of great closeness. He was experiencing those aspects of the human experience and of human emotion. He also experienced anger in the temple, casting out the, the money lenders. He also experienced the greatest betrayal as one of the people that he was engaged in this time of uh, great uh, fellowship with actually went and for money betrayed him to death. And we also see times of uh, excitement when his disciples understood some of what he was saying in this time. And we also see disappointment as his disciples at times not only failed to understand what he was telling them, but affirmatively acted uh, uh, in ways that were contrary to what he was trying to teach them. And of course, the, the disappointment of seeing them all abandon him. All of these things have occurred in this week, and now Jesus is in front of all of these leaders of his people, and he is in front of them in the dock, as it were. He is a defendant, and he could have no, no illusions, even, of course, if it were possible for him to have illusions, but he could have no illusions as to what was being sought against him. This was not an attempt to get a slap on the wrist. Jesus knew that they were there to seek his life. And he was there all alone. He did not have counsel sitting next to him. He didn't have supporters. He didn't have witnesses to testify for him. He was fully alone. Now think about this from a human perspective. Because, of course, as I said, Jesus was very man. Think about this from a human perspective and think, first of all, about the difficulty of being on trial for your life, the tension, the stress, the anxiety of having been abandoned by everybody who would help you, and then imagine that what is being done to you is not lawful and that it is being propagated by people the people who have you on trial are the ones seeking your life. They're doing it for no good reason. And they're doing it with false witnesses and false testimony. 
I think each one of us might react in different ways. I think each one of us might react in different ways, but in very, very understandable ways. Perhaps we would react with defiance. You can't do anything to me. You are out of order. This whole system is rigged against me. These witnesses, or perhaps we would react simply as, uh, a, a, as with analysis, pointing out the various problems with various witness testimonies. Jesus was not speaking at this time. And yet, without speaking, the witness testimonies were at odds with each other. And boy, I know for myself, it would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, not to be jumping in to point that out. Did you hear that? That person said that. That person said this. None of you guys know what you're talking about. Or to act with anger. Or anger justifiably so. Am I being put on trial for my life simply because you are threatened by the truth I am bringing? By the, the, the good works that I have wrought? Or to be react with fear, perhaps. Certainly there would be some trepidation, I think, in most of us in this situation to react with a variety of different things. And yet we see Christ silent, and I think it's safe to say we see Christ at peace. And we see Christ doing it silent and at peace until he speaks. And this is what seems most, perhaps, unusual, is that Scripture makes clear that they really have no case against him. <laughs> and they are flailing. I will say, it's a, it's, it's a great joy, that's happened to me a couple of times, to be on the other side of, of the courtroom from somebody and realize they don't have anything. Now, I've had times where you, almost every time, you come into court and you say, I think I know what they're going to say. I think I know what they're going to argue. But I wonder if they got something new. I wonder if they have something that's going to surprise me. And sometimes you are surprised, and other times you go, well, I'm surprised by how little they have. They had nothing on Jesus. And then something surprising. The question is put to him. And you would think that strategically, Jesus would maintain what had been, quote, working for him. The question is put to him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. People had been using words that in general uh, were related to words that Jesus had said about the destruction of the temple, but using them falsely and against him uh, in ways that were out of context and that misrepresented what he said. But at this time, Jesus chooses to speak. Seems odd, instead of maintaining his silence, Jesus chooses to speak and says, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Another surprise, it seems, because the high priest is ecstatic. He rends his clothes, but you can tell the excitement. Boy, I was getting nowhere with this. I had all these witnesses that I had lined up and suborned perjury from, and none of them were getting the job done. But then I just ask him, and finally, the first thing he tells is, he says something that allows me to, to get the result I wanted. He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? 
They answered and said, he is guilty of death. He gets the result that he is seeking, that everybody there is seeking, and then they, uh, they entertain themselves by doing what they had been hoping to do and what this trial is about. They spit in his face, they buffet him, they smite him with the palms of their hands, they mock him, saying, prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee. And we look at this, and it seems, again, a bit strange. Because it is a little different than how Jesus has acted previously. Jesus is not a stranger to matching wits with the scribes and the Pharisees. He's been doing it throughout Scripture. How many times did they come and attempt to entrap Jesus? How many times did they bring lawyers to take Jesus in front of the people and get him to say something wrong? How many times did they game plan really tricky questions? And every time, Jesus didn't struggle at all. Jesus gave them the answer, or at times, Jesus would refuse to answer. Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus never answered, and yet here we have an answer. We have an answer with no, uh, absolutely no evidence of chagrin, no evidence of uh, concern by him, a level answer, and an answer that gives them the rope sufficient to hang him. Seems odd. It also seems odd because we see Jesus here at absolute peace, at absolute certainty, at a time in which it was probably only their hours at most, since he was sweating drops of blood. Now, I've said, think about being in Jesus' position from a human perspective. But think about how he appeared. Think about how he appeared. This is a man who has been up all night in agony of spirit. In absolute, the most tortuous, the most difficult uh, wrestling in prayer. This is a man who has been doing all of this, who has then been confronted and now is in front of people. Think about how that appeared. And what's more, we also see Jesus not simply in terms of how he interacted, not simply in terms of how he appeared, but what he said. We see Jesus here confronted by the law, not confronted by the Roman law, which Jesus had very little interest in talking about. Boy, they wanted to get Jesus to opine on the Roman law, and we need to, we need, it's good for us to remember sometimes. He said, all of that is a different kingdom. I'm here to talk about uh, God's law. But we know that Jesus, from, of course, as divine and as the author of the law, knew the law inside and out. But we also know that he studied the law. And we know that from when he was very young, he was somebody who was able, as if from a human perspective, to talk about the law with anybody. And yet we don't see that here. In fact, we see nothing that we would expect if from 
somebody in this perspective as a human being. Because all of the impulses we would have in this perspective, or in this, uh, this time frame, this, uh, this plight, as it were, from a human perspective, all of the impulses we would have would be in relation to our, uh, the, the place that we found ourselves in. The danger, potentially, that threatened our earthly life the anger or natural human emotions that would come from being placed unjustly in this position, and what, uh, what uh, had led up to this. That would be our tendency. Our tendency would be to defend ourselves. And I have to say, as I'm moving through this, it's important to note, if Jesus had defended himself, had spoken out in his own defense, Speaking out in your own defense is not necessarily always wrong. We see the Apostle Paul acting as an advocate in his own defense at times. We see uh, the Apostle Paul using uh, uh, specific uh, provisions of the law to defend himself. It's not necessarily that it's a wrong thing. However, why do we see Jesus here not defending himself? Why do we see him not speaking up? Well, I don't think it's that difficult to see this as a different phase. We see, I think, the split, the time, the, the, the crossroads in Matthew and in the Gospels has occurred prior to this point. Now, for Caiaphas and the, the priests and the scribes, the turning point, the crossroads, was now. This was the trial. I'll put it to you that I don't believe the trial was here. Pontius Pilate would have thought that the trial was the next day. He would have said the elders can't do anything to him. They have no power legally to do anything to him. The, the trial was when I was able to speak to him. Or perhaps maybe the soldiers and the executioners, they would consider it when he was on the cross. Or, potentially, others would think, well, the crossroads was when people came against him with swords and staves, and he did nothing to fight them off. But again, I'm going to say that I think we see a very consistent Jesus from the time of early in chapter 26 to, the very, to his very death on the cross. We see Jesus completely at peace. We see Jesus completely at peace. Now, I've spoken about this before. I think one of the, the most meaningful things I have gotten out of Matthew chapter 25 and 26 for myself when reading it is comparing the language that Jesus uses in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying that the cup would pass from him with the language that he uses uh, when confronted by his enemies, when Peter takes up his sword and he says, the cup that my father gives me to drink, shall I not drink it? We see that certainty. Jesus first wrestling with that. Now, I think it's important to say, not I will not say wrestling in doubt. I will not say wrestling in resistance to God's word. Certainly not. We know that that is not the case. And yet, I think it is important. Sometimes we under estimate, we underappreciate the human nature of Jesus. 
and to our cost. We have a, an idea of Jesus beatific on the cross. So there's many paintings that have been done throughout the years that seem to indicate this with the halo, with the soulful glance. We don't see his real suffering then. We don't see his real suffering from a human perspective. Be, just because he was God does not mean that he wouldn't feel the same pain from his nerve endings that we felt. But what's more, I talked about this on Wednesday. We don't see if we under-appreciate his humanity. We don't appreciate the pain in his cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We don't appreciate and understand the unspeakable pain that came from that moment of separation for Jesus Christ. And you know what? We also don't appreciate the pain that Jesus felt while wrestling in prayer. Now, why is it that we know about it? We certainly know about that because God wants us to know about that. Because Jesus wants us to know about his share of our struggles, of our difficulties. I think each one of us, hopefully, has wrestled in prayer like this before. Maybe not to this extent. But each one of us has wrestled in prayer. Each one of us has known grief. Each one of us has looked forward to pain. Perhaps you're experiencing that pain right now. Perhaps you're looking forward to more pain in store. And you're able to understand the, the feelings and the emotions and the raw physical sensations that Jesus was experiencing at that time in prayer. But we see Jesus wrestling there, and that was the trial. That's where Jesus knew his future was in the hands of his Father. And that's where we see Jesus speaking out about that cup. Again, not in resistance to God's will, specifically in acceptance of the will of his Father. But noting and speaking about this desire that the cup pass not from him. And then as soon as that is done, we see Jesus say, take your rest. At that point, it was not yet finished, it was not yet accomplished, but it was certain. And it was certain for Jesus. Again, we don't see after this time a Jesus who is in uh, an earthly emotional sense necessarily joyful or happy, but we see Jesus fully, fully peaceful. We see Jesus accepting. And you know what I'm going to say to you today that I think in looking at this passage is that we see Jesus not just accepting, but working towards. Now, again, we see Jesus on the cross and we understand that he could have resisted. He could have called legions of angels to take him down from that cross and to fight his enemies. But you know what? Even when they came at him with swords and staves, we saw examples where Jesus, by his very words, were able to knock people back and he was able to walk through in the midst of them. Jesus had every ability, had every aspect of power available to him to resist. But you know what? What I thought about in looking through this today was Jesus also had every ability to get an acquittal before Caiaphas. All he had to do was remain silent, but even more so, 
every single time Jesus had spoken, he was utterly, obviously, but utterly uh, uh, able to crush every argument that was ever put against him. And he remained silent. He remained silent, and this is somebody who we know, not simply because he is God, but also from a human perspective, was a great advocate. And he remained silent. Now, I was thinking about this, and it reminded me of something. That Jesus remained silent in his own defense, and yet he never ceases to speak in ours. Jesus is our advocate with the Father. Jesus is our lawyer with the Father. Jesus is the reason that if we are acquitted, it is not because of our defense. It is because of Jesus. Not simply, uh, we don't get forgiveness simply by his blood, but also, also by his pleading. We see that in Scripture. And yet his advocacy was not put forward at this time or before Pilate. And in fact, when it appeared that the case against him was tottering, he gave it a little help by speaking absolute truth. And speaking truth in a way that would lead to his conviction. Now we know, we see it throughout Scripture. Jesus was able to give truth in ways that flummoxed his opposition. They would try to get him in a way where it seems like there were two, only two possible answers and Jesus would go a third way. Jesus could have stated this answer in a different way. But he wanted it to be very clear that he would be convicted of claiming to be God, to be the Christ, and to his authority and his power. He wanted it to be not mistaken, what he was saying. And they had tried to do it up to this point. At a certain point, he said, listen, I'm going to have to help them out. <laughs> they're, they're never going to get to this through their false witnesses. I'm going to have to state it clearly. And he says it with absolute clarity. And we see throughout the Gospels different things that he said. But I think it's safe to say all the things that we see that him saying would have been related to this time period. Jesus wasn't speaking through in his own defense throughout this trial. Jesus waited to one at, at one time to speak clearly his authority and his position. And so again, we don't see here a desperate man trying to bargain. We don't see uh, a fearful man. We don't see... Uh, an angry man, we see a man who is utterly, utterly committed to the path that he is on. Now, what can we gain from this? What can we understand from this? Now, I talked about this on Wednesday when I talked about the incredible pain in that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I said it was fitting that we were coming to this on Valentine's Day because our understanding of love sometimes is in the context of what the, uh, we see in commercials or we see in stores on Valentine's Day. And of course, romantic love is something that's given by God. And yet the greatest demonstration of love was there on that cross. Because Jesus could have stepped down from it at any time. Jesus uh, undertook 
that pain, not just the physical pain, but the pain of that separation and the agony of that heart cry, and he did it willingly. I, I was talking to somebody who reminded me of the, the song, uh, it wasn't the nails that kept him on the cross, it was his love for us. And that's something that we need to remember. But it was also his love for us that maintained his silence here at this trial. It was also his love for us and his love for the people that came against him, that stopped him from, or that, uh, that had him stop his disciples from fighting to protect him. At this point, Jesus had fully, and I'm not saying he had never not fully accepted. I want that to be clear. This is difficult uh, uh, theologically, but it's important to understand. Jesus accepted the will of his father. But we see Jesus wrestling in the garden, and now we see Jesus at peace. We see Jesus in acceptance. And we see this, the first thing that should come to our hearts is an overwhelming gratitude and appreciation for Christ's love for us and Christ's sacrifice for us. Because again, each one of us, each one of us in this position, of course, it goes without saying, but each one of us in the, uh, this situation would become very Peter-like. Peter was confronted by accusations in this same chapter. How'd he do? Very poorly. He reacted in a recognizably human way. <laughs> he said, no, it wasn't me. I didn't do that. I didn't say that. Bring your witnesses. I, I, I don't know what they're talking about. Peter reacted in a human way. It's very, very, I think, uh, uh, amazing how Scripture is making very clear <laughs> the uh, contrast between the humanity of Peter and Jesus, though very human, and the godly way in which he was acting. Peter, when confronted, when his friend is about to get taken away unjustly and improperly, comes out with the sword, and each one of us can understand and perhaps even in some level have an appreciation for the courage of that moment. And Jesus' answer was no. You haven't been listening. If you had been praying with me, you would know that that sword is not the right thing. Number one, you would know that I don't need a sword. But number two, you would know if you had been praying with me, and you had been struggling with me, and you had been there with me, you would know that I am accepting this. Don't fight against what I am accepting. But we see Peter... Uh, in contrast here, fighting against these accusations. Very, very stark uh, difference from Jesus and his acceptance. So it should fill our hearts with uh, gratitude and appreciation, but also, it's also here for an example. Now, not all of Jesus' examples at all times are we certainly able to follow. When we see him... Uh, there are times in which his divinity is uh, essential to an aspect of his story. However, so much of what we see Jesus doing, there is a temptation to ascribe it to that divine part as a way that we don't have to follow, that we don't have to follow this example. And I was thinking about it because, again, as I said, there are contrasting examples here in Scripture. Not, not, at, not uh, in any part uh, in any sort of contradiction. But we do have examples of where standing up in your own defense can be appropriate, can be the spiritual thing to do. We see it with, we see it with uh, Paul. We see it at other times. But of course, we also see very clearly in the New Testament 
the necessity of being led by the Spirit. Because at some times, if you're, the prison gates fly open and your chains come off, it's appropriate for you to leave. And other times, it is appropriate for you to stay. And so, but the point is, when we see these examples, I think it's important for us to think about, because I know when I read Paul and his defense, the human part of me goes, hmm, that's good stuff. That would be satisfying. That would be excellent to be able to speak out. There's a part of me that sees this and has difficulty, wrestles with this. In the same way that there's a part of me that sees Jesus on the cross and wrestles with it. Because as a human being, what would I want to do more than anything, of course, is step down from that cross. And to understand that Jesus Christ had the temptations that we have. Okay? If we don't think that Jesus didn't have the tempter trying to whisper in his ear to step down from that cross, didn't have the tempter in his ear trying to whisper to resist what was coming to him, then I, I, I think we, are, we don't see it reflected in Scripture, the actual temptation in the same way that we uh, do when he was tempted out in the wilderness. But Jesus was human. He felt the same sensations we did, and yet his obedience was full and his trust was full. And so how do we apply this? Well, the easy and straightforward application is to apply it in times in which we are accused or we are confronted or we are persecuted. And there's validity to that. There is importance to that. When we are confronted or we are persecuted, especially when we are confronted or persecuted, it seems for righteousness sake, we need to evaluate how we react. Because for myself, and I would say for many Christians, the easier response is to maybe pick up the sword. Or it's to come out with the smart words, the intellectual devastating response. Or come out maybe even with some anger, some, some, some uh, words of uh, uh, just uh, disgust with the process that's going on. Coming out with all of those sorts of things. Or perhaps with fear, with trepidation. And yet, we don't see this in Jesus. We see Jesus not acting this way. We don't see Jesus running from truth. But we see Jesus making no attempt to defend himself. Why? Well, because we know that Jesus was absolutely trusting and knowing that he didn't, that him, any words that he had to rescue him from the cross would not have been rescuing him. They would not have been good for him. Absolutely resting, absolutely trusting that the cup that his father had given him to drink was what was good for him and what was good for the people that he loved. Absolute trust, trust, absolute rest, absolute confidence in his father's purposes. Okay? We see this and we see Jesus saying, why am I going to resist what my father has for me? And I think we, should, we can let that play upon our heart. We can let that play upon our conscience the way that we react when people uh, come against us or talk against us. 
But finally, I want to come back to this point, and that is that why was Jesus able to have this confidence? Why was Jesus silent? Why was Jesus even potentially kind of helping the case against him? Why was Jesus so at peace? Because he was absolutely trusting of his Father. And how did he get to the point of absolute trust of his Father? Was it because he had some special relationship, being in unity with God the Father, that we do not have? Just innate because of his divine nature? I don't see that reflected in Scripture. What I see is that he wrestled in prayer. He was there in prayer. He was there pouring out his heart to his father. And not just in as an aside. How many times do you say, oh, I prayed about it, and what you did was say, God, could you do that for me? Okay, cool, as you're walking to your car. <laughs> we don't see that. We see Jesus sweating drops of blood. And that time of prayer, that time of prayer, intimate exchange with God of words. Because Jesus wasn't just talking, he was listening, folks. That is what he was doing. He was speaking with his father. And he was wrestling. Again, not in an unfaithful way, not in an evil way. Jesus was there wrestling. He was there in sorrow. He was there in uh, drops of blood. And when he was done, he was able to understand that what God the Father was leading him into was what was supposed to happen, was the cup that he was given to drink. And so, this is my encouragement to each one of us. Not simply in times where perhaps we're confronted for righteousness' sake, although certainly it has, uh, there are many things to be drawn, especially as we live in a world that uh, culturally, and perhaps someday in, in other ways as well, uh, will uh, deride and persecute us for, what, uh, for our trust in Jesus Christ, there is an application to be made there. But let's just take it to a more basic step. If we are struggling with difficulty and sorrow and pain and stress and betrayal, and loss, and imminent uh, trials and tribulations. Well, you can take heart, because Jesus did as well. And if we are struggling, and we are in pain, then we need to look, as Jesus did, in prayer to the one who has the power to rescue us from that situation. That's where Jesus went. Now, by the way, again, Jesus didn't have to do that. Jesus could have taken care of this himself. He, as submission to God, and him as possession of that human frame that he took on for us, he went to the one who had the power. He went to God the Father. And he expressed himself in prayer. He wrestled in prayer. He poured out his troubles to God. He poured out his heart to God. And yet he always ended in the same place. He always ended in submission and acceptance of God's will. 
Now, I said, I've said this before. How could he have possibly, how can we possibly know God's will if we go, don't go to him in prayer? And this is not fatalism. This is not sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. This is, I know that my father loves me. And I know my father is all powerful. And I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to tell him what is on my heart. And I'm going to place my request before him. And then I'm going to know that what he gives me to drink, I will drink. And that's the encouragement I have for each one of us. Because this is a practice that is not simply for times of crisis. Jesus Christ didn't just have this form of trust or this form of a prayer with God just at this time. Jesus was praying all the time. And Jesus was accepting all of the things. Jesus was, was trusting in all things. Jesus' faith in all things was constant. And that's why he was able to walk perfectly. And if we are seeking to follow his example, this should be our practice as well. Our practice as well. And this is what should uh, uh, be uh, the example, the characteristics of us as Christians. Because we know that scripture says we will face trials. We will face trials. And that word is chosen there because of the relationship. We will face trials. We will be on trials. We will face tribulations. Maybe we are facing those things right now. And the question is, are we going to seek to follow Jesus' example? Draw nigh to God? To trust in what he gives us? Or are we going to follow more like Peter's example? Act in our own hasty judgment? Act in our own self-defense, act in our own impulses, act in a way that is not set forth before us by God. So I pray and will pray that that is true for me, that is true for each one of us, that we will follow Christ's example here on trial with utter confidence, utter, utter trust, utter submission to God's will, and uh, utter fearlessness of anything that man can do to us. All right, let's close with prayer.